continuing in 1 John, so you can go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3 in your Bible in front of you. First John 3, starting in verse 4, and we'll go down to verse 10. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brothers. Let's pray. Lord, I know that this is the second week we've looked at this passage. But God, I'm convinced that we need to see more clearly today what it means to be your children, what it means to be sanctified, what it means that we have victory over the devil. God, give us clarity as we look at hard, I think, are hard things. Give us grace as we do it. Give us conviction where, Lord, there may not be conviction. Do this all, I pray, Lord, right now, by your spirit, for your glory, through your word, we ask. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so last week we looked at this same passage, and I I really struggled to, um, yeah, I struggled to even do this again, (laughs) because it seems like maybe it will feel like a similar sermon of last week. But I assure you, it's definitely not. Because last week we looked at how we are assured that we really are children of God as we look at our lives of holiness. But this week, what I want us to see, and if you're taking notes, I hope you are, you should have notes in in front of you, just a slip of paper that was in the announcement sheet. I I really only have one thing for us, and it's up, up there at the top of the page. It's this, it's that since God has broken the power of sin over our lives, We must seek to rid ourselves of the presence of sin by walking in obedience through the Spirit. And I know that might be like, wow, that's really simple, and that's pretty much what you said last week, but it's not what I said last week. And I I just want us to step back into this and consider what, what it means when John says, whoever abides in him does not sin. How can John say that? To understand how the power of our sin in, of sin in our lives has been broken, we need to understand first the rule. And in verse, we're, we're really going to be looking at three verses today. Is verse 6, verse 8, part of verse 8, and verse 9. But to understand the, the, the breaking of the power of sin, this first section is entitled the power of sin. We need to understand the power of sin. 
And I've also subtitled it, The, the Bondage to Sin. And it's in verse 6, if you look down to verse 6, it says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, I want to I refer to the ESV a lot, a different translation. Uh, and it says this, it says, No one, same verse, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, the Bible has many ways of referring to this dynamic of the power of sin that is broken in the life of the believer and the presence of sin that still remains. And so we're still talking about the power of sin, this, this bondage to sin. And, and what, another way you could refer to it is the domain or the dominion of darkness. The dominion of darkness. And I'll try to remind you, Ed, when there's a slide, if I'm, I'll try to help you out. The dominion of darkness. Now, to understand this dominion and its origins, we have to go back to the very beginning of the scriptures. In the very beginning, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And a lot of you are like, of course, of course he did. We understand that. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And he placed them there to be sub-kings to him. Okay? So that's what he did. He placed The word is vice-regents. He placed them in the garden and said, you will be my authority here in this place. But what Adam and Eve did was they rebelled. And that rebellion was what they did was they looked for significance and value and purpose elsewhere, outside of God. And in that moment, the moment they ate the fruit, here's the thing, rebellion is not about the fruit, okay? The point is that they stepped outside of God's good design. They looked away from the life giver and said, we, we will decide who we look to for authority. And in that moment, when Satan, when Eve ate the apple and Adam was there watching, they gave the authority that God had given to them to someone else. And that was the serpent. And that was Satan. And for the last however long, since Adam and Eve, we have lived in a dominion of darkness. This rebellion has led to spiritual death, physical death, because everything was placed by the people who were supposed to reign to Satan. It was given to someone else, to another ruler. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, Paul says it really well. He says, in their case, the God of this world that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So for First John to then say in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What he's saying is that dominion, that authority that has been given from people to Satan has been broken. And in 1 John later, we see John say this. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who's born of God protects him. And the evil one, that is Satan, does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole, hear this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I wonder how much we contemplate that. That, the, that that last statement, just even this last week, I was, at, I was getting my car work done and talking to the guy there, and he, 
he just kept saying how things have been so different since they, what they used to be, and in some ways he's right, I understand that. And what I wanted to keep saying to him, and what I did keep saying to him was, I'm not surprised by this. <laughs> like the, the ridiculousness of this world, all of the, the chaos and the confusion, because this is the reality. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So for, Jesus, for people to just say, well, Jesus, he just cleaned me up from some of my, cleaned me up, helped me do a little better than what I was doing before. No, John's saying he has broken, God has broken. If you're a Christian, the power that Satan had over your life, he's broken it. He didn't just come to clean us up a little bit. He has come to actually break the power of sin over our lives. I love, there's an example from, from Jonathan Edwards, and I think it's, it's very helpful. He says this, he says that the faculty or the will of a person is the power of the mind that is capable of choosing. And I heard an example once that equated that to someone who, what we would look at and say is an alcoholic, maybe. So an alcoholic, picture with me, all of the world around us, and, and we before Christ, were like an alcoholic. Now, an alcoholic can choose any beverage he likes. He can choose liquor. He can choose beer. He could choose champagne. He could choose any beverage he would like within the alcoholic framework. But before Christ, you know what he could, choose? He, he could not choose? Not alcohol. And the difference, and what John is trying to say to us, is that the difference of the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer now can actually choose to not sin. The believer can actually now choose, I don't want alcohol any longer, because the power of sin has been broken over our lives. No one who abides in him, that is Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, because the power, the dominion of Satan over their lives has been broken away which leads us into the kingdom of light. So we move from the domain of darkness and now we're looking at the dominion of darkness and now we're looking at the kingdom of light. And this is exactly what John is describing here in verse 8. When he says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he goes on he says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is part of what it means to be delivered from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of Jesus. He has destroyed the condemnation that Satan had over our lives. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation any longer. And Paul later in another place, he says in Colossians 1.13-14, he, that is Jesus, delivered us from the domain of darkness. This, this, is, this, this is a great representation of what Jesus has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It is not a transferring the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It, it is that transferring that shows the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. The, the unbeliever is like the alcoholic who chooses, everything he does, he continually chooses to sin. Now that doesn't mean that he's out burning streets or doing anything, but everything he does proceeds from unbelief. Whereas the believer now can by faith believe 
and, and be counted as righteous like Christ. Which is why John can say over and over again in this letter, everyone who practices sin is not from God. So how are we to think about this? I know this is, at this point it probably seems very basic, very simple. We've heard this message before. But I really want to do a deeper dive into sanctification. What does it mean by sanctification? And sanctification is just a big word that all it means is becoming more and more like Jesus. That's all it means. So we're to think about this biblically. Let me give you the first one. It's definitive sanctification. This is how we're to think about it as a believer. It's definitive sanctification. Now remember, sanctification, just a big fancy word for becoming more and more like Jesus. Definit- I love what one author said. He said, definitive sanctification, there's a quote here, it's longer. Definitive sanctification is the once-for-all event simultaneous with effective calling and regeneration, which is all that John's talking about here, that transfers us from the sphere of sin to the sphere of God's holiness, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And what he's describing here, John Frame's describing, is he's saying that we, if you're a Christian, there's a sense in which your sanctification, there's a once-for-all sanctification, that you've had to break with the power of sin over your life. Why does this matter? Why am I bringing all this up? Well, I've really thought about it a lot this week and prayed about it, and I actually have some false views that I think are very common, not just in the church, but I see them in in different circles. This isn't just one circle I'm talking about. Many, many different circles. And the first false view of sanctification. See, and here's, here's here's the problem. We view our salvation oftentimes as a complete work of God. Praise God, that's right. But oftentimes these false views, what they do is they get it really mumbo-jumboed about what is our role in sanctification. So let's look at this first view. And again, we've talked about it before. It's called sinless perfection. This is a false view. And and we've talked about this already. We're not going to rehash this uh, a bunch, but in 1 John we've seen it. John has said that there are some who think that when they became Christians, they no longer sin. I like to think about, maybe we can think about these views best by, think about the trash that you take out of your house every week, okay? So if we were to think about the the sin in our life being that trash, this first view would say, I became a Christian, and I no longer have trash. The trash, it's gone. I have no more trash. And we can see that this is such an easy one to say. That's ridiculous. (laughs) That's absurd. We've seen this in 1 John. We're not going to rehash it. The second one, I think, is a more pervasive one. And I'm entitling it the let go and let God one, the false view. And this one basically is the idea that there are people who are Christians, who are carnal Christians, and those who are spiritual Christians. Or or merely, to say it like this, it's merely having, the the carnal Christians are the ones that have Jesus as Savior, and then the spiritual Christians are the ones who have Jesus as Lord. And the change is dramatic. It's a false view if you were to think about this, the, the trash in your house, if the first view is, well, we don't have any trash in our house any longer. This second view says, we have trash in our house, um, and I choose when I take it out. I'm the one who determines the trash I want picked up and moved out of my house. And this is wrong. This is very, very wrong. It, it's a view that says, 
that the first, the carnal Christian, is one who's in spiritual bondage and does not have spiritual liberty. The first is, is one that has the duty life and not the love life. Here's what a testimony would sound like. How do you spot this? No, no one comes to you and says, I'm the one who holds the let go and let God sanctification version. They don't say that. But what they do say is things like this. I was saved when I was eight years old. And then I surrendered my life to Christ when I was 17. And again, no one, no one says that. No one says, I'm the one who has the let go and let God theology. They're the ones who say, I became a Christian when I was six, but I didn't start acting like it until I was 18. John would say to them, you became a Christian at 18 then. You didn't become a Christian at age six. This view has three different categories for, for people. There's one that's the unregenerate, that's the unbeliever. The second, that's the carnal Christian who's regenerate, but it's not characterized by an unregenerate lifestyle. And then there's a third of the spiritual, which are regenerate and they're spirit-filled. And this view is so terrible because it believes that they use the Holy Spirit to sanctify themselves. They they believe, and again, no, no one comes and says this, but ultimately what the view does is it says, I use the Holy Spirit in the same way that someone would use a hammer. I'm the one who chooses when to use the Holy Spirit. And this is just not true. So why do I bring this up? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because if a person does not know how they're changed, then it will actually hamper your ability to be changed. If if this view, or maybe tenets of this view, have snuck in to your thought processes, this change will be all self-effort. Everything will be up to me. Okay, God has saved me. He's done all the work, but now it's all up to me. And this is just wrong. This is a very truncated view of God. And let's go on, though. Paul Paul says in other places, and again, we're, we're kind of doing like a survey almost today of sanctification. And I think it's because John's really unpacking something that I think is really important. But Paul refers to the same dynamic and he calls it the old man. And if you, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to 1 Corinthians. It's on your paper. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And we're just going to go down to verse 3. And I, w- I want you to see this, not that it's something that Daniel's saying. I want you to see that this is what the Bible says. And it's this dynamic of the old man that had the power of sin over his life and the dynamic of the new man who now has just the presence of sin in his life. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And I love what another translation said. It says, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. And what Paul's saying, he's not setting up two classes of Christians. He's not saying, oh, there's some that are carnal, and then there's some that are spiritual. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there are some who have the Spirit of God, and those are called Christians, and then there are some who are not and don't have the Spirit. But the dynamic, and we're going to see it played out here in verses 15. Look in verse 15. The spiritual person, that is the one who is born again by the Spirit of God, however, can evaluate everything. And yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. Because he goes on and he says, For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. That is, the believer has the mind of Christ. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Okay, now here's the distinction. So he's giving the categories of those who are unregenerate, those who do not have the Spirit of God, and those who do. But then he says, here's the category, here's the distinction. And this is where this view gets it completely wrong, the the second view. They say, oh, well, there's a third category of Christian that's just grieving the Spirit. That's not what, what he's trying to get home here. What he's trying to say is, you as a Christian, if you're acting as though you're not one, that doesn't mean you're a third category of Christian. That means you're walking in rebellion. It means, and he goes on, he says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you are not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. There it is. There's the distinction. So there's the unregenerate who cannot receive the things of the Spirit. Then you have those who can, but what they do is they walk in rebellion or disobedience. He's not trying to set up a third category. What he's saying is that believers may temporarily live in a fleshly way. But believers, and what John, to go back to John now, what he's saying is that believers, by definition, the direction of a believer's life is not toward things that are carnal, but towards things that bear fruit. Again, the fruit of a Christian is not that he never sins. This is what we need to get. It's not that he never sins. The mark of a Christian, a born-again believer, is that it's, it's the response to what happens when he sins. The mark of a Christian is his response to sin in his life. So I want to encourage you, if you're discouraged here, this morning, and you're fighting against sin in your life, if you hate your sin, if you, if you despise your sin, then good news, I think you might be in this other category, this born-again category, because the, the non-Christian, he doesn't hate his sin. Everything is self-focused. Everything is for his own benefit. Everything is, is self, self-exalting in that way. But the Christian says, no, 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 no. I hate, I hate the garbage that comes out of my life. And let's keep going, though. So the, here's the second category. There's the first category of, of the power of sin. But I want to look at the second category for the Christian. It's the presence of sin. And again, this is just unpacking the two points we talked about last week. So the presence of sin. I describe that as the freedom. It's the freedom of the will. And John is saying here that the person who's had the power of sin in his life broken is free from sin. But then the question is, okay, Daniel, you're saying to me that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Okay, but what impact then does the devil then have on my life? Because it sure seems like there's a spiritual warfare going on. And if you read the New Testament, it is littered with spiritual warfare language. So what do you mean by this? which is where we get to the next part, which is deliver us from the evil one. And if you notice, that's actually the words that Jesus prays, tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And I would describe this as defeated but active. Defeated but active. Jesus even taught us in the Lord's Prayer, like I said, he says in in Matthew 6, 12 through 13, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. 
So this word at the end, it could be best described as deliver us from the evil one or spare us from the evil one, preserve us against the evil one. And Jesus is modeling for us that we, in and of ourselves, have no ability to do war against the devil. Okay, I want to be very careful how I'm saying this as well. That we, in our flesh, in our nature, of ourself, have no ability to do war with the devil. Because Jesus says in John 10 even, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We are the ones who are completely and utterly dependent upon who? The Holy Spirit. We are the ones who are completely and utterly dependent upon the Lord's strength and ability to guard us. And you say, well, where do you see this in the New Testament? Well, in in Luke chapter 22, Peter, who is the rock on which the church was initially built in that way, he says, this is Jesus praying for him or talking to him. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. All right? Like at that point, you almost want to be like, what conversation was Jesus in that Satan demanded to have him? But listen to what he goes on and prays for, for Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. But here's the distinction. Here's the power for the Christian. Is the Christian is not saying, he's not saying, oh, Peter, look how great you are. Peter had no idea of this warfare happening behind him. But Jesus is the one who says, no, 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 no. Satan is not going to sift you like wheat. But he says, but I have prayed for for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's the distinction. Peter, we know, rebelled or or he denied the Lord And what he's saying is that that was the temptation from the evil one. But Jesus is saying here too that he has prayed for him. And that is the strength of the Christian. This is the strength of Simon Peter and it's our strength as well is because the Lord Jesus himself is the one praying for us. By his spirit, for his glory, he is the one who's praying for us and saying, deliver us from the evil one. And when we pray, deliver us from the evil one, what we're doing is we're aligning our will with God's will. We aren't the ones who deliver ourselves. The second thing I want you to notice is that Satan desires our destruction. So he will always seek to cause us to stumble. He has, his, his power over our lives has been utterly broken. But the presence of the temptation from Satan is still a very real reality. And you need, if you don't realize this, you will be duped. You will be deceived. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, here it is, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And what James is saying is the same thing here as John, at some level. He's saying that the, that the devil has had the power over our lives broken. But what happens is Satan gets on top of, at some level, or pushes against the temptations that come from our own desires. And when desire gives birth, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Satan tempts us and entices us with sinful desires that come from within. 
not by self-will and self-effort, but through the Holy Spirit in our lives is how we overcome the devil. Which is why James could also write then later, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we were still under the power of sin, we, he could not say, resist the devil. That would be worthless. He's saying, though, you can do this by the Spirit of God in you. By the unmerited favor of God in our lives, we are able to first submit to God, and then we are able to be called to resist the devil. Okay, okay, so since sin's power has been broken over us, what does it mean then to walk as a Christian? Which brings us to the second point under there, which is progressive sanctification, which I've described as a gradual unveiling. And it's kind of what we talked about last week, but it's, it's different. And I want to show you the distinction. So the definitive sanctification is the ultimate one-time event of the breaking of sin over our lives. But this second aspect of sanctification is progressive. Go back to the alcoholic for a second. Think about that. For the alcoholic to stop drinking, he must have a break from his desire, from himself, from alcohol at a desire level. This does not mean that he will never drink alcohol again, but it means that he has had a clear break from it. This man may still struggle with alcohol, but he is no longer a slave to it. This man can keep on sinning in this way. This man cannot keep on sinning in this way. Progressive sanctification means that he is progressively changed, which is how we get to our third false view. And this one is a view that you, maybe, maybe you have heard, maybe you haven't heard, I don't know. I would describe it as getting used to our justification. And this view believes that true good fruit is never motivated by a command. This view holds that any threat or warning in Scripture never produces good fruit. Rather, they hold that the good fruit is produced spontaneously by the Spirit of God within us. They also hold that any pursuit of holiness, any pursuit of being conformed to the image of Christ, is not in line with our justification by faith alone. And I would push back against this view. I don't believe this view is true or right. So let's get to the true view. Let's hop down there to the true view. What is the true view of our sanctification? What ought we to think about when we think about our sanctification? I've described it as this, God working underneath our working. It's God working underneath our working. And I said this once and I'll say it again. Our view of salvation is such that God, we believe that God himself has descended or has come to us in a unilateral direction to us. But sanctification for the Christian, the the true view is actually described as synergistic. So the first one is salvation is viewed monergistically, which is one direction, but sanctification is synergistically, which means it's two directions. It's synchronized. Meaning that God is working underneath our working. I love how one, uh, J.I. Packer, I think it was, said, he quoted it this way. I think it's very helpful. If you ever have questions, I've said this before, if you ever have questions about the Bible, just go see what J.I. Packer has to say about it. And he'll probably make it a lot more clear than whoever has, whatever questions you have, he's very helpful. There should be a quote for it, Ed, sorry. There it is, yeah. Yeah. 
The Holy Spirit, this is how he describes it, the Holy Spirit uses my faith and obedience, which he himself first works in me, to sanctify me. Okay, so what you're saying, Daniel, is he's the one who initiates it, he's the one who energizes it, and he's the one who brings it about. But there's a, there's a how do I put this, a responsible participation It is inevitable in the life of the believer. It is not automatic, which means that it will come about in the life of the believer, but not autonomously. And I love this other quote. I think this is also from J.I. Packer. He says, although humans participate, God, who began the action, the process in salvation, is also the one who energizes the believer and guarantees the completion of the process. This view could be best understood as a gradual killing of sin with a gradual transformation into the image of God. And we could talk for a lot longer on it, but let me give you a couple ramifications or a couple implications for your life. When we talk to our children and we say to them, and I do this all the time, so I'm just as guilty as anyone, and I'm learning to grow in this. When we say to them, And Simeon doesn't have a sibling yet that he can interact with. But someday I'm going to say to him, Simeon, apologize to your sibling. When we say that, when if Simeon were to hit a sibling and say, don't do that, that's what we would say. Don't do that, Simeon, that's bad, don't do that. And we say, go apologize to them. And we never help them turn their attention to see that God is actually the one who grants them to forgive one another. What we do is we make a very humanistic understanding of repentance and sanctification. What I mean by that is that if they begin to believe that, oh, I can just forgive them whenever I want, however I want, I think a more appropriate way to do that would be to say, Simeon, come here. We need to first pray that the Lord will grant you the repentance needed to apologize to your sister. And once we do that, then we can go and say, horizontally, now go say you're sorry. And in every single way, this, this, this is the same thing with fights with our spouses. If we just immediately run to our spouse and say, honey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, or I didn't, I didn't mean to do this, or it's a coworker, or whoever it is, and we never turn our attention and actually say, Lord, forgive me, Actually, grant me the grace to actually be repentant in this. What we do is we make sanctification a very second view, false view, humanistic understanding of repentance. That we begin to believe that we can just wield the Holy Spirit like a a hammer. And that's just not true. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come and change us. And actually, this does several things for us. I want you to see that this last point, and and again, this is just the the other side of what Paul calls the old man. He then calls the new man. And I want you to see the implication of what this means. The new man. And I've entitled it, Obedience from the Heart. Romans 8, 6 through 9, Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So there it is again, Paul talking about the power of sin over the life of the believer. And then he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's those who are unbelievers. But he goes on and he says, you, however, 
are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So there it is again in Paul's writings. So the life of the believer can be pleasing to God. This new disposition of the believer is toward holiness. It is a Godward direction. And it is the Spirit of God and the believer progressively cultivating and nourishing this new life. And he goes on in Romans 8, just a few verses later, to say, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, here it is, here's the dynamic, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see it? The dynamic, he's even saying right there, he's saying, if by the Spirit of God you put these deeds to death, you'll live. He doesn't say we wield it of ourselves. He's saying, by the Spirit working in us, we are transformed. I love what John Frame then again says. He says, certainly, it is a good spiritual exercise to remind ourselves of our justification or of the cross. Certainly, it's a good to preach the gospel to ourselves and to repent of our idolatries. Those are good things, by the way, he's saying. Those are good things. But none of these exercises replace the act of obedience itself. In the end, God expects to us to obey his commands. So this is not just saying, Lord, remind me of the cross. Great. Okay. Amen. It's actually saying, Lord, remind me of the cross so that the cross would so impact me that I would go and walk in obedience. And again, here's another passage I've continually referenced, but Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. We need to be a people that understand that our sanctification is not just a matter of more self-will, more self-effort, striving, hungering. It it is those things. But it is those things in such a God-directed, God-focused that we realize that God is actually working in us. I have heard many believers say, I don't see the power of God working amongst us. I don't see how God is working in, in in the global church as a whole. I don't see how the power of the New Testament, I don't see that kind of movement happening. And what I want to say to that person is this. It is God who works in you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you realize that it is not just him working in you, but he's actually partnering with you to change you for obedience. Oh, that we would be people who teach our children this. Oh, that we would be people who realize that we do not change ourselves. Oh, that we would be people who would not sit on the bench and just wait and just revel at the cross with no obedience. Which is also why Paul can then say in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. Here it is again. He's struggling with all of his energy, with all of his might, 
that he powerfully works within me. So it's not just Paul saying, oh, yep, I'm just working on my own self-will. When he's not saying, look how powerful the Lord's work is in my life. He's saying, I'm striving to work with the Holy Spirit of God to change, to, to walk in obedience. And since God has broken the power of sin over our lives, we must seek to rid ourselves of the presence of sin by walking in obedience through the Spirit. I want us to take some time now. We're going to move into a time of response. And, and for our time of response, I actually want us to take communion together. Sometimes we have us take communion after service uh, just by way of allowing us to repent and to turn from uh, sin and, and reconcile with our neighbor. But sometimes it's really important that we take communion together as a body like this. Um, so I just want you to take a minute. I'm going to give you just a time of response, and then I'm going to ask two guys if they'd come forward and we could, we could do communion. Uh, so just take a moment and respond before the Lord. Uh, anything he's prompting you.